Hello and welcome back to True Crime Guys Podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michael. We have quite a case for you people. Uh, you may know him as uh, Slave Master. You may. You may. And he's also known as potentially the world, the internet's first serial killer as well. Yeah. This guy was on, on the early days, chat rooms, uh, catfishing people. Right. One of the earliest catfishers, man. No yeah. doubt. But he, what's crazy is he was killing... He was—he'd already killed several people, like a, a, you know, almost a decade prior to that. Then the internet came around. It's like he'd taken a break, yeah, partially because he was in jail. Uh, but all, but I, then when the internet came around, he's like, "Hey, remember that killing thing I used to do? Maybe like this internet can make it even easier for me. So maybe I should get back into that hobby." Yeah. Unfortunately, this dude was no idiot. He was, no. you know, like most of these killers, the successful ones at least. He's—he was somewhat smart definitely a sociopath and knew how to talk to people and then charismatic as fuck honestly on this charismatic scale this guy might be top three of all characters we've ever covered Mm, that's a bold statement and his physical appearance added to it like he had this jovial uh you know i heard uh one of the documentaries we watched uh compare him to the pillsbury doughboy he had this round face he was always smiling he had dimples he just had this like a you know friendly approachable face and he also had the personality to go with it like a true yeah. salesman con man really he it's you, like you he, could do a whole episode on, just on his cons alone let alone the murders oh no doubt no doubt yeah he wasn't the most attractive guy but like you say he just seemed approachable and lovable like he just did you see the pictures of him when he was a kid like in the cub scouts though like he was a he was a cute kid like, oh i bet had the dimples and stuff back then. Like, yeah. he looked like he could have been, uh, like, you know, like on a sitcom or something. Like I say, that round face, man, that round face is just hard to deny, especially as a kid. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's something, but, there's something uh, warming about There's something that trusting about it. He just, mm-hmm. he just doesn't seem as, as nefarious. Yep. But as he grew into his own, he became known for scamming, impersonating, killing, and putting bodies in barrels. And oh, if that no. doesn't rope you in to, to get interested in this case, I don't know what will. I have no Let's idea. Let's do it. Cue the intro. For our case this week, 
We are doing a fairly known serial killer. If you're in the true crime world, you've probably you may have heard of this guy, slave master John Edward Robinson. Yeah, I've seen his um, picture around before we definitely into you've this. seen that. Yeah, yeah, you've seen that that uh, that round face. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I think that's where the extent of it uh, is. The, if we were doing another case, which is usually the, the deal, um, I would see his face, whether it was Reddit or Instagram or whatever. Someone else had covered him. or So I've seen that face a bunch, but never dove into him until this week. Right. And wow. I could see why his face is everywhere because he's he's been around. He's a renaissance man, if you will, in a dark form. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. There's a lot to it. I can't believe it's taken us this long, really, to, to cover this guy. This seems like something we would have covered a couple years ago, for sure. Right. <laughs> this guy makes you feel lazy in a way. He started. How many businesses did he start? How many business? Like, he was. <laughs> yeah. It, he was a bit like our our episode on Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, Frank Abagnale. You know, Frank Abagnale Jr. This guy would just fake it till you make it. He would walk into places and and just charm them and lie to them and say that he had all these degrees and whatnot and and get these high paying yeah. jobs. And then immediately start ripping the company off for a shitload of money. This was like, you know, the whole earlier part of his adulthood until he started killing. And then we'll, you know, we'll get into yeah, that. Yeah, he but. talked his way into jobs and then he instantly figured out a way to to profit off of it illegally. Like this guy's a yeah. fucking Robert California turned serial killer. Right. Like, you know, like, <laughs> this is, yeah. it's crazy what this guy was able to do. Yeah. And he would... Uh, and he would absolutely half the time he would charm his way out of it too. He would get the company to agree that he could just pay back the money that he stole from them. Right, and right. They would just go their separate ways. Probably just give him some sob story. I really needed it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Whatever yeah. he had to say. This guy was I a was chameleon. It to charity. Yeah, sure you were. He he gets to scamming charities too, and using them as a means to get victims as well later. Oh yeah, this guy is crazy. So let's get into him. John Edward Robinson was uh, well. For, quickly, actually, let's talk about the book that we used to study this case. And a couple other sources. So the book we got is called Anyone You Want Me to Be, A True Story of Sex and Death on the Internet by John Douglas. You may have heard of John Douglas if you know true crime. Mm-hmm. Little known guy, you know, from the FBI. Right, uh, right. May have heard of him. Mindhunter, may have heard of that. He had a little role in that. Right, right. So, um, yeah, well done book. Uh, that's where we got a lot of the information from this case. As well as, you know, there was like an ABC special. Yes. Um, what was it? The... Uh, there's also a last one standing or something like that. It was called. Yeah. And then there's also a crime investigation channel. Uh, there's documentary a documentary as well, there's, but there's a lot of stuff on this guy. Yeah. But the documentaries mainly only focus on his crimes. They don't really focus a lot on his, his early year oh, or his murders rather. I'm sorry. They yeah. don't, they don't focus on all the extra crimes, all the earlier cons and shit that we're going to go through in this episode. So right. that's, that's the benefit of the book. So yeah. there's, there's so much to this guy. So let's get into it. John Edward Robinson was born in Cicero, is that how, Cicero, Cicero Illinois. Illinois, I would say, yeah. Yeah, Cicero, Illinois, on December 27th, 1943, and shares a birthday. This is kind of funny because we were just talking about this guy on Just the Banter yep. recently. Bill Goldberg, he shares a birthday with the great Bill Goldberg, he is, wrestler. Wow, not worthy. Someone asked us who our favorite wrestler was on uh, on Just the Banter, <laughs> and that was my answer was Goldberg, just because my, my grandpa was a big wrestling fan and loved Goldberg. So as a kid, I just, just watched him spear everybody. And That's right. Go, and Gold, legend. Goldberg also made tribal tattoos okay for white guys. There you go. So <laughs> what a rev- yeah, you know what? what a revolution! Everybody else that got him just didn't look quite as cool, though. Not you know? a chance. <laughs> you really got to be just an absolutely yoked bald guy to pull that off. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Goldberg was a champ, bro. I wonder what he's up to now. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It's funny, man. Like how many um, dudes that were like in their twenties in the early nineties 
that that have, that are still rocking that they're like 50 something now and they got the, yep. the tribal yeah. <laughs> armband my father-in-law actually has it there you go man he didn't even get it all the way around the arm though he likes like the inside of the arm where it hurts he didn't fill that oh, part he in. didn't fill it in <laughs> no. yeah i had a friend that got a he it wasn't tribal but it was barbed wire and he did the same thing and i'm like bro you're trying to look you've got barbed wire around that your actually arm. is what it is i think it's actually barbed wire. Oh, okay yeah, yeah. Right. i'm like you got barbed wire around your arm but you didn't get it all the way it's like how tough are you like though you know, you, you, I mean, <laughs> you can't get it on the yeah. underside of the arm. Yeah, uh, that's hilarious. So John was born to Henry and Alberta Robinson. Um, his father, Henry, was a machinist who worked long hours when and um, when he was home, he was most likely drunk. So, mm. so here we go. Um, yeah. He, you know, not much young John's. Figure. Yeah, he was. I mean, he wasn't uh, there was no uh, evidence that he was abusive necessarily when he drank, but he would get rowdy. Okay. Um, and John was the middle of the five children, um, born to, uh, Alberta and Henry. Mm -hmm. Um, John, uh, by all accounts had a, a pretty normal upbringing. You know, his father was known to binge drink and his mother was very strict, but other than that, there was no reports of abuse or anything unusual. Right. Hmm. Okay. Um, and he was, uh, John was a, a loved kid, you know, really was kind of, a he, he went above and beyond. Like he became an Eagle scout and like talk a little bit more about some of the stuff that set him apart from other kids early on. He was showing that charisma and that go-getterness early on. Right. Right. Um, in the fall of 1957, when he was 13, he became an Eagle scout and was granted the privilege of leading his troop to, on stage for a performance in England where he, where the honored guest was none other than Queen Elizabeth herself. That's pretty impressive. Queen Elizabeth the second. That's what I'm saying. Like he stood above and uh, above the other kids in his, uh, you know, peer group. Right. I mean, in 1957. I mean, what else is a 13 year old gonna do? I know, right? <laughs> yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna sit around playing Minecraft. Right, right. He's... He didn't bring his Nintendo Switch with him, so yeah, he might as well right. become an Eagle Scout. Yeah. <laughs> um, while at this event backstage, he was photographed with Judy Garland. Who? Why did I just turn Irish when I said Garland? <laughs> Judy Garland. Judy Garland. <laughs> <laughs> Judy Garland from uh, Alice in Wonderland. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, he was. Uh, he allegedly pursued her and said, "Quote: We Americans got to stick together." After she walked by the troop backstage, and they, she actually gave him a kiss on the cheek, and I think they got a photograph together as well. Oh wow! So he just was never afraid to, to take his shot. You know, he was a guy that was just even as a kid, he just wasn't the opposite of shy. He was incredibly outgoing. Yeah, and, um, extremely charismatic and confident. At such a young yep. age. Yep. Yeah. He seemed to be a charmer at a very young age, able to talk himself in and out of situations and would attend Quigley Preparatory Seminary for boys in Chicago and studied to become a priest. Man. Um, it's like he just wanted to do everything right by the book early on, right? He really wanted people to like him, it seems. Yes. And also, like when you said he wanted to do everything, I was about to say yes, because he seemed like he also just wanted a taste of every bit of life in general, like I said, makes me feel lazy or, you know, oh, whatever, because yeah. this guy, <laughs> like not as the ambitious. life that he lived. Yeah. Yeah. You know, aside from the horrible, heinous crimes that he did. Right. Right. You just look at all the different places he went and all the different uh, places he worked and businesses he started. And yeah, but yeah, he was, he was a busy man. Let's just put it that way. No doubt. No doubt. So um, in 1961, he attended Morton Junior College, where he changed his course of study and instead focused on being an x-ray technician. 
However, he never completed the training program to become an x-ray t- uh, technician. But did that stop him from becoming an x-ray technician? Absolutely not. Why would it? Not for a second. Mm-hmm. Not for a second. I mean, who needs to actually learn the job that you're going right. to do? When have you? When sh- you can just act like you know how to do Let it. Let me ask you a question. When have you shown your high school diploma to an employer? Never. Bro. Yeah. No, I, I don't, I, the, I'm trying to think. Like, I don't know if I actually had to like scan it or anything. Like, I think I just put in what year I graduated. Exactly. You know, you just type that in. <laughs> exactly. That's what everyone and, does. Well, especially when you're talking about the 50s and 60s. Like, there's just no you know, accountability. There's no checking. Like, we see that throughout this whole thing. We saw it with the Catch Me If You Can episode. Mm-hmm. You pretty much can just make up a fake p- uh, paper real quick. You know, type some shit up. Yeah. Put a signature on it, and you know, there you go. You got a fucking degree from Harvard. As long you know? as you're charismatic and confident enough to portray that in an interview, then you're good to go. That's all it was, man. And he had that. So he doesn't uh, complete the training to become an X-ray tech, but he uh, just walked into various hospitals and uh, lied to them and landed a job at Chicago Hospital as an X-ray tech. There you go. Um, which <laughs> reminds you of Frank Abagnale Jr. Completely, uh, he he does this time and time again. A little bit, but at least at least uh, John had a little bit of experience as an X-ray tech. I know he didn't. At least he com- went to some of the schools. Right. He didn't complete it, but yeah, he didn't complete the program. But I'm sure he still had the books. He still had you know uh, you know worksheets and essays and shit that were written. And I'm sure he was mm-hmm. able to study. Well, so did Frank Abagnale, though. To be fair, he went to the library. The library was his best friend, and he studied up on yeah. these things as well. Um. But it just, Frank Abagnale had zero experience though, like no college. He went in and posed as a doctor. Like, my <laughs> God, not just an x ray tech, as an actual doctor, man. I know. To think he was actually like working on people. Oh, my <laughs> God. So crazy. The cojones to do that, bro. Like, we talked yeah. about it, but my God. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. So, John would marry a woman named Nancy Lynch in 1964, and she would be uh, very soon pregnant. And the couple would go on to have four kids over the coming years, as well as a number of grandkids. And John would, throughout the rest of their relationship, continually cheat on her and um, Mm -hmm. be off doing all kinds of scams and everything else. But um, she was with him throughout this this case. Um, Stuck by his side. Yeah. So shortly after uh, becoming married to Nancy, he gets fired from his job after suspicions of embezzlement. This would be a common theme. Every employer he ever worked for, he basically ripped off in one way or another. Right. Um, this time the hospital did not file criminal charges since John had promised to pay back what he stole. It's crazy. However, as a reoccurring theme, nothing is paid back and John gets away. Promises to pay him back. Something, there was one where he owed like an employer 50 K and he paid him back 40. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. They must've been on him. I'm guessing in threatening to, you know, have him arrested or whatever. And he was like, eh, it's still worth it for 10 grand. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So after uh, after the you know being fired from the hospital, John and Nancy relocated to Kansas City, where most of this case would take place from there on out. Yeah, good old Kansas City. We love our Kansas City creepers. That's Shout right. out to all of you. Yeah, there's even a, the Chiefs. There's even an Olatha reference in this episode. Yes, and, Olatha. And we of course uh, John bounces back and forth between Kansas City and Missouri, or Kansas and Missouri rather. Yeah. So that makes things difficult. So yeah, try to keep up with that, guys. <laughs> But it's all in that yeah. same area, pretty much, from what I can tell. Yeah. So John is able to land a, a job at a pediatric hospital again as an extra a technician, even after being canned from his last hospital for embezzlement. You just leave that off the resume. Know, Easy peasy. I, I'm guessing during the embezzlement situation, they never really realized that he was not even, uh, you know, trained to be. In, he was. He didn't have any 
uh, qualifications what, to be an X-ray tech. That's what's they, crazy. They didn't look into that. Yeah, they fired. Oh, right. They fired him on embezzlement. I, apparently, he was doing a great job as an X-ray tech. And <laughs> and look, and they didn't even want the money. I mean, they didn't even get the money back, and they were going to let him pay it back. So that means he had to have had some sort of good relationship with them. He was probably doing yeah. fine at his job as an X-ray yeah. tech. <laughs> that's the irony mm. of it. But he just got in yeah. trouble for embezzling. So it's not too crazy to think that he got another X-ray job because. He probably did know the job pretty well, especially now. Yeah, well, at the pediatric hospital, the, he got uh, exposed a little quicker. Um, part of it was he he didn't he wasn't that great with the kids, you know. And you really, it's yeah. a I think it's a totally like the pediatric field is is a far different skill set. You have to yes. be uh, very passionate and um, patience. Have, have come understanding, yeah, patience, yes. Um, and he was just in it to, to scam hospitals and not so much, he didn't care so much about making the kids comfortable when he was x-raying them and things like that. Right. Right. I could see um, that. And the staff would come to realize this and, um, he would be fired from this hospital as well. Um, he would quickly be let go. Um, and at Michigan and, and Kansas at the time did not require technicians to be licensed, but employees did expect applicants to be trained and experienced. So that, I guess technically there could have been others like him that didn't have the, you know, didn't have okay. the uh, the licenses, right. but just had the skill set. Well, it was probably a, a field at that time in which you could get a certification, or if you had enough like uh, shadowing hours in mm-hmm. in a in a pediatric or not a pediatric, but a, a hospital or whatever, then you could you know get your degree as well, or be a certified, uh, you know, technician if you have enough years yeah. experience. I don't know. Maybe I'm being ignorant and I apologize if, you know, I offend any x-ray techs out there, but it just seems like, you know, you generally, you're not, you're not evaluating the x-rays. That's the doctor's job, right? So you're basically, you just got to make sure you scan the right part of their body, right? Right. Pretty much. But they, but x-ray so technicians, like that hard. but they do understand the x-rays. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, they don't need to. Well, they don't need to, but you know, they do. Probably x-ray yeah. techs are probably some of the best at reading x-rays, honestly, because they yeah. see them all the time and they see them as they happen. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I just You just hear that a lot. You hear that a lot from nurses as well, how they, you know, a lot of nurses are like more qualified than doctors because they're there mm-hmm. all the time. They're right beside these patients. They actually are there witnessing the side effects of different medications and the way surgeries are done and whatnot. So, yeah, I don't know. Just saying. Not that the doctors aren't qualified, just saying. Yeah. So by this time, John was already known amongst the colleagues that he worked with to be quite a wild man or a night owl, having affairs with female coworkers and women he met at nightclubs. This would be just as common as him scamming his employers. He was also known to sleep with every woman he could within, you know, whatever workplace he was in right. every time. Right. Um, after his short time at the children's hospital, he was let go, but lands a job with Dr. Wallace Graham, who happened to be president Harry Truman's personal physician at the time. Oh, wow. Okay. So just really charming his way into the higher ranking members of society. Right. And he's getting fired. It's like fired, (laughs) new job, fired, fired, upgrade, fired, upgrade, fired, fired, upgrade. upgrade. Just keeps getting a better job each time. (laughs) Yeah. Society really taught. No wonder this guy went bad. Just failing upwards over and over again. This guy did not know what failure was. It just didn't. It wasn't his vocabulary. He should have gone into. He should have gone into politics. He would have become president eventually. Right. Walked his way right in. Failing upwards. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, he would end up over the next couple of months embezzling an estimated one hundred to three hundred thousand dollars from the office before anyone caught on, which Jesus. in today's dollars would be around a million dollars, or like I think it was like eight or nine hundred k. Oh yeah, three hundred thousand today. Yeah, yeah. Oh my in, god. In the late sixties. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a lot of inflation that occurred after that. <laughs> Not kidding. Um, he was also accused of sleeping with coworkers and patients during visits. With one woman admitted. Uh, admitting she was duped into sleeping with John after he told her about his wife that was dying from a terminal illness. My God. Wow. This dude, he had no conscience whatsoever, man. Just a straight <laughs> sociopath. Probably from yeah. a kid. That's probably why he had so much success as a kid. Like, yeah. you know, he did- I think, yeah, I think he learned as a kid he could really like talk his way into whatever. Yeah, exactly. He's like, if I'm cute enough and I'm charming enough, I can literally do whatever the hell I want. Yep. <laughs> Um, he attempted to make the same deal with Dr. Graham as he did the hospital in Chicago and pay back all of the stolen funds, but Dr. Graham wasn't having it. He said no and fl- uh, filed criminal charges against him. However, you know, if you thought and that- justice would be served here, you would be wrong because this would be like his first real run-in with the law, and he would be given a slap on the wrist. Um, he was found guilty of stealing by means of deceit, but remarkably only served, uh, was only given three years of probation. That's insane. Yeah, well, if the if the prior employers would have held him accountable and you know had yeah. him arrested for stealing so much money from them, that's true. They would have more of a they would have more of a track record, uh, you know, and see that he's a re offender, and you know, hopefully they would have given him more jail time. But it makes you have to hold people accountable. You can't well, just let them let them off easy. It makes you wonder about these these practices, doesn't it? The fact that they wouldn't. It's like if he stole tens of thousands of dollars from you, like why wouldn't you hold him accountable? Why wouldn't you press charges? Unless you don't want an investigation into your hospital, yeah, right, maybe you know what I'm saying. Maybe, maybe the fact that he was able to get away with that in their hospital exposes way more loopholes than the fact of just letting him take that money yeah. and dip. And maybe somebody in a you know somebody above him would have their head would have rolled because Preci- they let it happen precisely because the right checks and balances weren't going in place, and he was able to benefit off of that. Yep. Hmm. Yeah, wow. and of course this would become the blueprint. Uh, for one side of John's life for the next decade, he would get hired to a job he was underqualified for, steal a shit ton of merchandise <laughs> or money, and then get caught, but serve no time. <laughs> so incredible. Would, yeah, it's like why wouldn't you? You know, if, right? If, if there's no real consequences, why wouldn't you just keep doing it? Exactly. It's easy. It keeps happening. This dude's gonna be the so, Surgeon General before long. <laughs> exactly. Oh, like I said, just keep failing upward. <laughs> Um, then in 1970, the Robinsons moved back to Chicago and John took a job as an insurance salesman, but then again, failed when he, you guessed it, embezzled money Ah, from his employer. No, he didn't. He would never. So he had a short stint in Chicago before being ordered back to Kansas city by a parole board after he violated his probation. So he decided to establish his own company in Kansas city. Oh, there we go. Yeah, why not? Just make your own company to steal from. Right. You know? Yeah, there you go. Fuck around with other people's companies. The boss can't get mad at you when you're the boss. Brilliant. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and you really know all the loopholes of your own company. Right. I can't believe this guy didn't just like if he was around nowadays, he would just be one of those people that makes an entire fake company or a fake festival and gets people He'd to just invest. have a bunch of shell companies. Yeah, exactly. There'd just be a bunch of a He'd bunch probably of probably be charities, you know? Yeah. Charities you would create a shitload of charities and just be funneling all that money into offshore accounts or something. Oh my god. No doubt. There's too many people doing that. Be hanging out on Epstein's Island. Oh god. <laughs> oh. Um, so, 
So his first attempt at a company was called Professional Services Association, which just sounds so vague intentionally. Like exactly, what do you do? Professional service? We do professional services, sir. Mm -hmm. We're an association of that. We're an association of professional <laughs> services. We're also incorporated. incorporated. <laughs> <laughs> so he pitches it as a medical consulting firm. And the company go went under after Robinson is conv convicted of yet more white collar crimes, including forgery, false representation, and mail fraud. Jesus Christ! Um, so, uh, how much money he has taken over the years is still unknown, but it must have been quite a bit because in 1977 the Robinsons are able to move back to the Missouri side of Kansas City, where they purchased a very nice nine room home in a small suburb known as Pleasant Valley Pleasant Valley Farms. So it pays wow. to pays to be a criminal, you know. Apparently, that's what I'm learning from this case. Yeah. Yeah. And while in Pleasant Valley, he would eventually weasel his way into every position, every possible position within the community. First, he became an elder in the church, oh, a referee, also a referee in the local volleyball games and his son's soccer games, and was even the president of the Pleasant Valley Farms HOA. Oh, my God. <laughs> this dude is so fucking creepy, man. <laughs> he really, I'm telling you, he should have been a politician. He, he would really, have been so successful. He would have dominated. He would he absolutely would. dominate it. But he just didn't want that much light on him. You know, he was too smart for that. He's like, I'm just going to yeah. be involved in all the underlyings of the community and in my immediate community. You know? Yeah, true. There might have been too much of a spotlight on him. Yeah, like depending on what church he's at, you know what I mean? Like, And how big of a, a standing that church has in that community, that's a huge role right there. And then like being at kids' how many uh, How many of the donations to the church do you think he was skimming? Oh, bro. All of them, right? You know, he always... We'll leave $2 for Jesus, and I'll take the rest. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll take up the offering alone, as usual. Uh, right. You guys just wait in the back, and we'll count Since it. Since I am spreading the word so well, I, I feel I am due compensation. Here. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah, so again, John tries to start his own business venture here. Uh, this time, it's HydroGrow. It's amazing how like many different avenues of business he went. Like, oh, you know, I think I'll start a hydro a hydroponics growing company now. Yeah, like having no expertise in that at all. Like, but you know what? What the Fuck hell? It. It's hot right now. I'm seeing ads yeah. for that. <laughs> exactly. Um, and it's with this false with the falsity of this company that he's able to pull off one of his more brazen plans. On December eighth, nineteen seventy seven, John Robinson was named quote Man of the Year according to an article of the Kansas City Times. Wow! This amazing honor was given to him for his employment of disabled persons and was presented by the local sheltered workshop association, with a plaque and a speech being given personally by the mayor. But uh, a hit piece would come out on him by the local media and pulled the rug out from under him uh, when they discovered that Robinson had made the plaque, the bouquet, and all of the arrangements regarding the award and luncheon himself. Oh, all... my God. <laughs> That's brilliant. He See made his own about? award ceremony, his own award, everything. <laughs> Just made a whole night about him. I fucking love it. Oh, my God. <laughs> The the uh, the brazen balls to do this, man. This guy know, is insane. Talk about taking fake it till you make it to the next level, dude. I know. Holy shit. He's literally, make your own award show. He's literally That's making like the, it so he can like fake the Dundies it. or something. <laughs> the Dundies. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. We got to quit with the office references. I know. Oh right? shit. So, uh, John had taken advantage of the local shelters association and forged several signatures. And he knew how to pray on the week. So, yeah, I mean, we know he's good at this. And he's again picked up and charged uh, and serves a little bit of time for these other crimes. And in 1979, just after being released from prison, he lands a job at Guy's Foods, the employee's relations manager, and quickly is back at his same behavior. He sparks up an affair with the secretary and begins to slowly drain the company's accounts. Within a year, he's facing felony charges and Guy, uh, Guy's, the grocery store, has filed a civil lawsuit against him. 
John is ordered to pay $50,000 in restitution, but it would end up shortchanging the company and only paying around 40000 which okay. is what I mentioned earlier. Yeah, this is that company. So it was a grocery store. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So I, th- I feel like guys made out pretty well compared to the other companies that he had ripped off. He got back like, you know, nine-tenths of, four-fifths of what he had stolen. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, they probably had obvious track record of him selling or stealing merchandise or money disappearing on his shifts mm-hmm. or whatever so they had him dead in the water you know it's a little yeah. i think it's a little easier to to track and keep up with in a grocery store right you know what i mean you got all these different people doing inventory and stocking and shit it's, it's a little harder well, yeah. than it is a doctor's office yeah hmm. so he's he's he of course he's not discouraged by this latest failure he just goes ahead and starts another business mm-hmm. this one is sure to stick <laughs> definitely equiplus <laughs> Equiplus was marketed as a consulting service to the public. One of the products offered was uh, provided his customers with a better way to store bull sperm. Yeah, I always needed that. So, <laughs> from hydroponics to bull sperm. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, this guy's covering I all mean, the bases. I got, I got tons of bull sperm. I just don't know where to store it. You know, so <laughs> so much bull sperm. I don't know what to do with it. I don't it. know what to do with it. Thank God for Equiplus. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, however, this company, uh, wouldn't last um, unbelievably, you know, with all the, the excess bull sperm in the world, I can't believe it. You, you know, you still couldn't find a niche. That just blows me away. By now he had made his way into the, the equine com- uh, community. Uh, he had bought horses and tried to fit in with the local uh, community. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by the conditions of his horses, he obviously had no idea what he's doing. His basically his horses were, you know, people were noticing that they were malnourished, starving, that they were malnourished, that their, you know, the facilities were not maintained. Oh, geez. You can't fake it when you go into the farm world, dude. Like the real farmers, like the, those people, the horse people, they know what's up. Like yeah. you, you wouldn't fool my wife who, who's been, you know, had horses for 20 years. Also, the commitment it takes is obvious. Yeah, like, that's what you, I'm saying. You don't have time a, to fake it in that. You either, you, you really have to live that life. Yeah, it's not a side venture. No. No. But it was this company that John that opened John up to the newest tool in his long list of skills. Through his through a potential investor, John was introduced to computers and the amazingness that is Xerox machines. And this would help to improve his forgery skills as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so after that company inevitably failed, he launched another one called Equa2, oh, which apparently provided consulting services to medical, agricultural, and charitable ventures. Oh, I see what he's doing. He's just, he's just yep. combining them all under one roof. Yeah, man. Yeah. He's got experience in all kinds of stuff. Yeah, you need some consulting for your medical records or yeah. some bull sperm. I got you covered. That's homie. right. Yeah. And if you just want to give money away to charity, I can also help you with that. Yeah, quote-unquote, give money to charity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for this company, he leased an apartment in Kansas City and an area known... Uh, this was an area known for prostitution, drugs, and other criminal activity, which was right up his alley. Yep. You know, he really liked being in that area because then he could just really get in with the seedy underbelly of the, of the community. Right. And he was known to later be running a brothel from this business as well. Uh-huh. So, of course, he's not uh, averse to getting into the, you know, sex, sex world, wherever he can make money. And also, he was... Uh, uh, well known in the BDSM com- uh, community, and he would become more and more well known as the internet would emerge, um, being known as slave master, as we would come to know. Right. And didn't follow many of the rules of BDSM with safe words and things like that. But we'll we'll get into the more of that later. He really got off on the, you know, the the pain and the abuse. Well, of people much like all the other, uh, you know, departments he went in. He probably didn't know shit about this either. He just jumped into it and was like, "Oh, this is this sounds fun. This might be something oh, I enjoy." Oh, we get sex and hurting people yeah. together. Let's oh, do it. Perfect. This is this is for me. I can fake my way into this. How hard it? How right. hard could it be? Mm-hmm. Um. So the apartment was uh, part of 
part of uh, John's cons. He presented himself as a charitable man who was helping young women uh, who were down on their luck. But the reality was he would put them up in the apartment and basically rent them out to other businessmen. So he was essentially a pimp <laughs> doing like, you know, a, a, a more poor version of uh, right. Epstein, I guess. Yeah. You know, rent, renting out these young women to rich businessmen and things like that. Right. Um, he was also known to be uh, interested in uh, BDSM, which we, we, we just talked about, and would look for women who were also interested in similar relationships. And this would ultimately lead him into Moida. And this is where we get into the Moida section of this Here case. Here we go. It gets heavy. So in 1984, John put an article in the local newspaper seeking a sales representative for his company. That ad was unfortunately answered by a 19-year-old girl named Paula Godfrey, she had graduated high school the year before, was an honor student, and a distinguished figure, figure skater. John promised Paula that the uh, basically the world. He said that uh, with paid training in San Antonio, with all the expenses paid, a great salary, and the pleasure of working for a family business. So he offered her this un, almost unbelievable job, like too good to be true, and it turned out it was. Mm-hmm. But all these perks for you know he knew how to appeal to a, a young person, a young girl that was looking to get the get their life started just out of school and like of this course. is an exciting opportunity i get to travel i get to see things it's good pay of course this all of this stuff he knew how to appeal how to appeal to that and rope them in yeah and you got to think most people weren't didn't have the if it's too good to be true it probably is you know motto stapled yeah. in their freaking brain because these are the early right, days of the internet even well it's the early days of the internet excited. too you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you're like, why would these people lie to me? Well, this wasn't even internet yet. This is 1984. He put an ad in the newspaper. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So John tells her this whole bag of goods and tells her that she'll be training in Texas, at which point he picks her up from her parents' house in Kansas City to take her to the airport where she is never seen again alive. Um, mm-hmm. This would be a new pattern in John's life. He would, you know, promise these young women things, pick them up, right. and they would disappear. Um and naturally, after not hearing from their daughter, the Godfreys became worried. Paula's dad flied, flew down to San Antonio where she was supposed to be staying and finds out that she had never checked in. He then goes back and confronts uh, John Robinson, who offers no help or answers. Godfrey threatens John, saying there will be serious trouble if he does not hear from his daughter in the next three days. And almost immediately after that, a letter appears in the mail that seems to be sent by Paula. But upon inspection, her parents are able to tell that she did not write the letter. Uh-huh. In the in the letter, uh, she quote, you know, supposedly her, says that she no longer wishes to see her family and gives no explanation. But of course, she took a minute to thank John Robinson for all of his help. Oh, of course. It's almost too on the nose. It's like having your, you know, your buddy grade your paper in class and giving you a hundred instead of like an 88, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it, it is on the nose. But this is also, this is a, this is where becoming a narcissist and a sociopath doesn't play in your favor. Because they're reading, right. the, because he had to mention himself in this fucking exactly. letter. He had to. I mean, yeah. come on. He's like, I got to mm-hmm. make sure I have no guilt in this, you know, that she liked me and I was good to her. Got to make mm-hmm. sure you put that in there. When in reality, if a daughter was writing home to her parents, they don't even know who this dude is. They don't give a fuck about him. She would be trying to tell them, you know, I'm fine. I'm okay. I love you guys. I'll try mm-hmm. to see you when I can. You know, just the fact she no longer wishes to see her family. Yep. And gives zero explanation. Yeah, no wonder that threw a red flag. Right. So the letter would be handed over to the police and a missing persons investigation was started. However, after talking to, to John Robinson and reading the note, the police informed the Godfreys that there was nothing they could do. So John wins over the police, what? it sounds like, uses right. his charisma yet again and convinces them that he had nothing to do with her disappearance. 
Um, to the police, it appeared that their daughter, who was an adult, had left on her own, and there were no signs at this time that anything had happened to her. So they believed the, this bullshit note. Yeah. Cause, probably just because it was convenient for them and well, you know, it was less work. Well, also, though, the note did have her real signature on it. That was something yeah, he was... John was known to make girls sign a blank piece of paper so that he could, you know... Exactly. And then he would take it. Xerox that shit and yep. put it onto a printed letter. Precisely. Or he would type out a letter. He did this over and over again. We would come to find out. Yep. 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 So that's why the police believed it was her. They're like, well, is this your daughter's signature on the paper? They're like, yeah. Okay. Well, what's the problem? It's To me, it's suspicious as well that like, if you're sending a letter to your parents, you ran off and you're starting a new life or whatever, you're troubled. Yeah. Would you type a letter to your parents or would you just fucking sit down and write it? You already signed it at the bottom, supposedly. You know what? In the in the late 1980s, I probably wouldn't because where the hell would you get a computer? Where would you? Where do you have a or typewriter? Even a typewriter, right? You yeah, carrying around a typewriter with you in you your car? You ran off, and yet you have access to a typewriter. Yeah. Like, what'd you do? Go to the library just to type this thing? Wouldn't you just sit down and write it? But right. of course, you know, John couldn't couldn't imitate the handwriting to that extent. So no. it just to me, it's a huge red flag that all these letters are typed out with the signature at the bottom. Absolutely, it Absolutely. became a calling card of his. No doubt. Um, and it's around this time that John belie- is believed to have had uh, ha- have come in contact with a group known as the International Council of Masters. Ooh. And it's just a group of old creepy guys. It's described <laughs> as a <laughs> it's described as a secretive sadomasochistic group or cult who all share a desire and, or interest in the same thing, a dominant, submissive, or master and slave relationship. Mm-hmm. So not just creepy dudes, but I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm dis- disparaging this community where probably most of them were cool people that just you know, right. this was their thing and nobody was being harmed by it and it's yeah no i mean it's fine it's just the fact that they labeled this international council of masters that makes it sound creepy yes, it's like it's fine it if you're a master and you're part of the master group or whatever but it's just like the international council Ooh, like what do you guys meet uh, with hoods yeah. and shit like in the- yeah for sure you imagine them having like staffs and stuff like that yeah right <laughs> they got like these <laughs> weird seances and shit i don't yeah. know yeah it's funny um, later in 1984, a worker at a local hospital became suspicious of John when he presented himself as a head of a local charitable organization looking to help new moms get on their feet. Ooh. Yikes. Definitely this not. Is, this is his new catfishing thing. Or he's going to get new victims. Yeah. Um, however, during the holidays, the hospital had contact, contacted Robinson about a mother needing help. He seemed excited at first and eager to help, but when he found out that the girl and baby were black, he started to backstep. So it's not not just a scam artist and murderer, but also a racist. Right. Or he's thinking about something else. He's thinking about... Um, or he's procuring prop- children for a specific person. That yes. He's looking a for a, type of a certain type of baby. Yeah. Yeah. So this immediately threw up red flags for the hospital, and every encounter inv- afterwards involved John uh, asking what color the baby was. He seemed to be looking for a white baby. The staff contacted the probation officer. So they find out this guy is also on probation. That's not great. You're trying to you know, connect these young mothers that need help and babies to this man who's on probation and is asking, you know, specifically for white babies only. Right. Like what kind of charity is that? You know, like, <laughs> exactly. aren't, shouldn't a charity help anybody that's in need? Not just oh, no, white kids only, please. Right, right, right. Yeah. That's a and also bit I'm on probation. Don't look into my past at all, please. No, don't worry about that. <clears throat> don't not the, uh, you know, the large array of uh, scams that I've done in the past. Don't look into that. No, at all. I'm a changed man. And the fact that I'm connected to a missing girl as well. Right. Um, so yeah, the staff contacted the probation officer who was in charge of John's case, a guy named Steve Hames and notified him that John could be involved in some kind of baby selling operation. And Steve Hames was the, this is the probation officer that was always on to John, right? He always thought he was up to more to no good, like more so than just scams. Like this guy was like on him. 
Yeah, Steve Hames is like the the type of pro- probation officer you don't want if you're a criminal. Yeah, exactly. he's going to be he's at your ass. fucking house like all the time. Yeah, it takes his job seriously as you should. Yeah. Um, so Steve begins to look into John's past and immediately becomes concerned. In the meantime, another medical facility had not been informed of John's suspicious behavior, and they contacted him when a young mother came in with a four-month-old baby. And she fit the mold. This was a white girl with a, a white baby, 19-year-old mm-hmm. Lisa Stassi, who had been living in a woman's shelter ever since her marriage fell apart. Her ex had returned to the Navy to reenlist, leaving her alone with their new daughter, Tiffany. John mm-hmm. picked up Lisa and Tiffany from her, uh, from her mother-in-law's house and checked them into a hotel. Yeah, this part's fucked up. Just hours later, Lisa calls her mother-in-law crying and frantic. She's upset that her mother-in-law is trying to take her baby. At least this is what this man, John, has told her is going on. Uh He's convinced her that the mother-in-law is trying to take her baby away. And she calls her and confronts her about this. Um, The mother-in-law is saying that that's nonsense. You know, I would never take your baby away. Um, And uh, she also tells her mother-in-law that... uh, that this man had made her sign blank pieces of paper and she oh, was scared no. and, you know, upset on the phone. And just before hanging up, suddenly she says the last words anyone would hear from her quote, they're coming, mm. which definitely leads you to believe there's more than John here. I was about to say, why does she keep saying they now he was getting this baby for his younger brother, right? That's what we come to find out Yeah, who had struggled to, um, you know, have a baby with his wife. Right. They, you know, they had struggled doing that and they always wanted to adopt. And that's what John was do- getting, getting this baby for. That's why it had to be a white baby. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me wonder, you know, was his brother also part of this situation? Right. Was that the, they, was it him? Like who else would it have been? It doesn't make any sense for anyone else. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Well, well more on that later though. Yeah. I want to have a discussion about that. Yeah, but the they in this has always confused everyone close to the case, leading them to believe maybe John had an accomplice. Right, right. Or she at least believed somehow that this was a bigger organization. I don't know if maybe he had other women there with him, or yeah, like you say, an accomplice or something, but something gave her, gave Lisa the impression that she was dealing with an organization. Right. It's interesting. Yep. So much like Paula, the first you know girl that went missing related to John, Lisa's family would receive type letters that were signed by Lisa in the following weeks. Just like Paula, this is becoming his his mo. His calling card. He types out these letters that are supposedly from the the girl that you know ran away that he's killed, um, and then he would have this their signature at the bottom. And you have to wonder if he was using his Xerox machines from his prior business to do so. Yeah. Um, these letters would say Lisa and Tiffany were fine and that they'd run off with a man named Bill. At the same time, across town, the Robinsons family was celebrating exciting news. John had just helped secure the, uh, the adoption of a baby for his brother, Don, and his wife, Helen. So this is the younger brother that we were talking about who had always had a problem right. um, having a child with his wife, and they desperately wanted to be parents. Mm-hmm. And John, had always he was always closest to this sibling, his younger brother, Don. Okay, And so he took it upon himself to fix that problem Don was having and, and procure a baby for him. Um, and this would be, um, you know, the little baby that he had taken from the mother that he had killed, this little baby Tiffany. Right. This couple, Don and his wife, had tried unsuccessfully for years to have a child of their own, but when the plan did not unfold, the couple looked to adopt, a fact that they had mentioned uh, mentioned before to John. Um, they knew of his charitable works with troubled women and his ties to shelters, Uh, and John presented his brother with what looked like all the necessary paperwork signed by local judges and officials along with this, this baby. Yeah. And so they, they thought it was on the up and up, you know, allegedly. 
you know, oh, believe that God. if you want, or you know, maybe believe that Don knew. Well, what there's was going no on and was maybe there, right? But there's no evidence to to like to think that Don, Don scene, that know, Don yeah. and his wife Ellen knew anything, or Helen rather knew anything about this. There's right. no evidence about that. But it is funny looking back at how the girl kept saying they, mm-hmm. Lisa, how she kept saying they in the in the hotel room. Yeah, it's it's it is odd. It yep. is odd. But that doesn't mean that they knew. They That still doesn't mean anything, right? That still doesn't... Even if Don is there at the hotel room, maybe he still thinks this is part of the process. Right. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, so this baby would, you know, at a certain point kind of be presumed dead because it was, you know, it was the mother was connected to John Edward Robinson, mm-hmm. a known serial killer later on. And so, but they would come to find out that... uh She's alive and well to this day and actually has done, did an interview with ABC in that special we talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, so yeah, check that out. She doesn't, she doesn't go by, um, the, Tif- you know, Tiffany anymore. She right. has a different name. She was adopted by uh, another family and lived out her life. Yeah. Mm. You know, that was a shock to her. My God. Listen, right. dude, the fact that her uncle killed her mom. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, the guy who she thought was her uncle. Think about that. She grew up with him for 15 years, right? As John. So I'm not sure if the... did the Were they saying that the family that, you know, adopted her was John's brother? Is that who actually raised her? Or? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they raised her for 15 years. Yeah. And, she, and she was being raised not knowing that her uncle killed her real mother. You know what I'm saying? Jesus, yeah. And he just kept that shit, I guess, a secret and just was good old... Uncle John for 15 years. Wow. Crazy. Psychopath. Yep. So, um, yeah, this information would not be uncovered for over 15 years, you know, what happened to, to young Tiffany. Um, and then following Lisa and Tiffany's disappearance was that of 27-year-old Catherine Clampett. She had moved to the area to stay with her brother while she tried to build a better life uh, for her son who had stayed with her parents back in Texas. However, shortly after arriving, Catherine would take a job with a local businessman. Uh, yeah, and you could guess who that is. And huh, she would yeah. never be seen or heard from again following taking this this job. However, by this time, Steve Hames, the, the you know parole officer, was pasting together a picture of the businessman that painted a very different picture than the person that he put out for the public. Mm-hmm. He, along with the FBI and both Missouri and Kansas police, were building files on the area con man. I mean, you could see these links. He he starts working with these young women who immediately go missing, and then they their families get these type letters that are all the same. Right. It's like and, he's building their case for them. And something you else. Know, he's a smart dude, but like this is just dumb to be it, sending. It's like he's like just that. getting brazen at this point. Like he's like we talked about earlier. I mean, all mm-hmm. the slaps on the wrist. He he probably thinks he can't be caught. But another thing uh, that we haven't mentioned yet is for all these hotel rooms where he's meeting these girls, he's using a company credit card, quote unquote company credit card. Uh, but it's in his real name. This is what baffles me. Like, how did it yeah. take him? Even though he's spreading fake names a yes. lot of times. Still, the credit card that it books the room is in his real name, John Robinson. Yeah. And yet there's still, like, I, I don't know. It just baffles me that it took them this long. And the, it, what's funny is he was lazy because the aliases he would make were always John, but it would be a different last name. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, you know what that is. That's just just in case you're... Yeah your instincts or, you know, somebody asks you your name and you blurt out your actual or name. Or he's well known around the community. So I'm sure he oftentimes would be walking or driving down the street and be like, Hey John. Oh, good point. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to cover it up too. Yeah. Right on. 
He's got a little Gacy in him. There you go. There's the reference. Oh, here we go. Get annoyed every time we I didn't want to say it, but it's almost damn impossible <laughs> not to. I didn't want to say it. He's got that same jolly uh, outward appearance to the public. Yeah. Yep. They're, they're both named John. Come on. Yep. Yep. So John was uh, was picked up again in late 1987 and finally seems to be facing some consequences. He receives an extended sentence for various scams and probation violations, but is released by 1993. So he spends, you know, almost he spends over five years in prison for you know these accumulations of scams and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But while in prison, he landed a job working in the prison's library. He was uh, well behaved and liked by everyone but was a master manipulator in prison and seemed to thrive, honestly. Of course he would. I could see him somehow making his way to like the highest position you could Dude, as an inmate. Yeah. You know? He just knew what people wanted to hear. He knew you know, who what else was loved in prison people. was Gacy as well. Remember he was like the head chef and shit. <laughs> <laughs> you better quit with all these Gacy references. You're going to get us a one I'm star. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. But it was in prison that uh, John Robinson, uh, Uh, was also exposed to the internet and began to form ideas of how to take his business pursuits and other pursuits online. So this is a new opportunity for him. It's a new world, a digital world, and he's going to be a part of it. Um, While working in the library, John was able to seduce a 49-year-old woman named Beverly Bonner and tell her all about his hydroponics company (laughs) and how great it would be, uh, how how great it would do with the internet now. Mm -hmm. And so even from behind bars, he is... uh, you know, seducing these women to come work with him. Yeah. Eventually, eventually he's able to convince Bonner to leave her husband and come to Kansas to be partners with him. And shortly after he is set loose from Western Missouri Correctional Center, Beverly Bonner files for divorce from her husband, packs her bags, says goodbye to her friends, and is never seen again. Jeez. He must, man, he must be some charmer, huh? Dude, working, working angles wow. behind bars, you know, thanks to the internet. That's insane. Hmm. Um, and so Beverly's alimony checks are cashed for the next 18 months, but no one knows where she is. Her stuff was graciously being looked after in a storage unit by her good friend, John Robinson. Oh, that's so nice. What a good guy. Yeah, the best. Yeah, I killed you, but I'm looking after your things. Okay? Yeah, right, right. Make sure no one gets your shit. And mm. for a while, her family was actually satisfied with John's stories and alibis. You know, she had left willingly to another state. You know, they couldn't keep good tabs on her. And, you know, she said she was going off to start this business with this guy. So why wouldn't they believe him when he's telling the family, oh, yeah, things are going great. Right. Yeah, um, why not? This, Yeah, this went along fine until a year later when one of Beverly's sons died and she failed to turn up at his funeral. Oh. The whole time, uh, no one knew Beverly was ever in danger. They were being fed lies that she was happily traveling in Australia or living in Canada or whatever worked best for John. Um, but, you know, when she doesn't show up to her own son's funeral, that, that raised some alarms. Hell, yeah, it does. Yeah. But meanwhile, with the arrival of the internet, John was turned his focus to the internet, um, creating a connection to the rest of the world um, and finally being brought to the community, the BDSM community. He really works his way into that as well on the internet. Right. Um, so John maintained in the, the apartment that, you know, that apartment he got earlier in Kansas City, we talked about in that seedy part of town. He still had that and rented it out over the years as a storefront for his business. And out of it, it was believed he was running a brothel. So using this business for several means. Yep. Um, and online, he's able to connect with exactly what he wanted, a slave. John joins every BDSM forum and chat room he can find. It's there that he first become known, becomes known as, quote, slave master. 
Yeah, and this right off the bat was a weird thing for this community because they say that most masters don't actually call themselves master. Apparently, that's yeah. like a taboo. Seems like thing. a bit of a, a red flag, right? I, I, I get that. That's I think I feel like that's safe to say in about every aspect. If someone is just adamant about call me this, call me this, I'm like, okay, well, mm-hmm. you're definitely not that then. Right, exactly. <laughs> you shouldn't have to say it so much if if you are. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I but agree. That was just a, that was just another another thing that could have exposed him, you know, in a field that he wasn't familiar with, that he was out here bullshitting people. Yeah. <laughs> Nonetheless, in 1999, through the internet, he lures Isabella Lewicka, a 21-year-old Polish immigrant. Um, he promises to put her up and give her an allowance and a job, all in exchange for her signature to, uh, for a signature on his slave contract. Right, which is what she but was a- looking for anyways. Mm-hmm. But of course, after leaving for Kansas, Lewicka is never heard from again. But all of her family is still abroad and is kept satisfied with the letters uh, that John is sending, saying that she's improving her life. In 2000, he tries the same ruse with 28-year-old Suzette Truton. Um, He offers her a job traveling the world on a yacht while she cares for his elderly father. What a story he tells there. I mean, his father's been dead for years at this point, and he clearly doesn't have a a yacht. But he spins this web and traps Suzette, who seems pretty straightforward except john's dad had been dead for years does not own a yacht and the tale nonetheless works and in early 2000 suzette leaves michigan and heads for kansas now there's a there's a bdsm element to this relationship as well because suzette was also a submissive and was looking for a master as Mm -hmm. well so she thought this is perfect right i can Mm -hmm. be a slave live in with the master and still get paid for a job taking care of his father travel around on a yacht so you see it what i mean pretty, so he's pr- just pretty awesome yeah exactly so he's just feeding all these all these pluses all these amazing things that i can give you that this will provide and this is these- early internet when people actually believed people right before people realized that most of the internet is a fucking scam and that everybody right. on there is living a lie right before we realized we shouldn't send money to nigeria this, yes. This was, exactly. Yeah. yeah in you're 2000. not the clearinghouse winner. Right. Right. <laughs> For the third time this week. <laughs> exactly. Oh, classic. So, um, yeah. So, nonetheless, the tale worked, and in early 2000, she left Michigan and headed for Kansas. And after a while of not hearing from her daughter, Carolyn Truton, Suzette's mother, became worried. She was very close to Suzette, and the two talked every day. Um, John tried to uh, to wave off Carolyn, and of course, the letters kept coming. But all attempts to speak with her daughter personally drove uh, proved futile, and Carolyn was forced to to turn to the police. So, these letters John's sending, she's not she's not satisfied with those. She wants to actually talk to her daughter, believe it or not. Um, So Carolyn is able to connect with Steve Hames, the you know (laughs) the parole officer who who uh, just keeps going, man. He's he's a beast. Mm -hmm. He's never stopped trying to prove that John was up to more than anyone knew. Um, And with the help from local detectives, they located Suzette's dogs. She had two Pekingese dogs that she kept with her all the time, and the two of them, uh, those exact dogs were picked up in Robinson's neighborhood on March 1st, 2000. So he Oof. just set the dogs free in his neighborhood. and the They just stuck around. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly. awesome. Exactly. Um, when detectives visit, well, yeah, those are pampered. That's a pampered That's breed right. of dog. That's right. They're not going to well out there. No, they don't it's live Pekingese. in the wild. They're waiting to be yeah. let in. They were just like walking around <laughs> with puppy eyes, like, right. someone feed us and bring us inside. <laughs> They're just out there shitting on the porch, just waiting to come yeah. back in. <laughs> right. Um, so when detectives uh, visited the dogs who had already been adopted out, they called them by their former names, and the dogs not only responded, but approached the detectives. Ooh. Those, that's damning. Yeah. So now detectives knew something was going on, but still had no reason to drag John in. So they began to follow him. 
So they put him under surveillance. The detectives mm-hmm. obtained shre- they also detain- uh, obtained shredded documents from his trash and followed him everywhere for some time. But the break in the case finally came when a victim came to the police. One of the women who John met fled a sexual encounter with him after he got too rough with her. She ran from her hotel room with a bloody nose to the front desk of her hotel room uh, of the hotel. Um, she asked for assistance and came to realize that the man was using a false name. So she called the police and reported the incident. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Yes, finally. Finally. Finally, with firsthand experience with this guy being cruel and uh, yes, violent. Um, so with this, uh, the the parole officer Haynes is able to secure a search warrant for the Olathe property, Olathe property yeah. that Robinson and his wife and children are currently living at. Mm. Um, during this search, police knocked. Oh, oh my God! Yeah, this is sorry. This is the it, I forgot how quickly this goes from zero to a hundred. Yeah. <laughs> so during the search of uh, Robinson's property, police find some barrels, some 55-gallon drums. And mm-hmm. we've done cases. We, we've done at least one case with yeah. uh, bodies and barrels this before. This some Australia shit right here. Yeah. Um, during the search, police knocked over a 55-gallon drum that appeared to leak uh, what they thought was blood. When they opened the barrel, the remains of Suzette appeared to be inside. Another barrel and the remain another barrel was found, and the remains were too degraded to identify, but police believed that it was Isabella Lewicka, and was later confirmed to be her. Mm. Three additional barrels were discovered at the storage unit. Unit police discovered uh, while following Robinson. Here they find three more barrels, which they believe contain the remaining uh, the remains of the other three missing women: Lisa Stacy, Paula Godfrey, and Catherine Clampett. They believed, you know, they were hoping or thinking that that was what they were going to be finding was Stacy, Godfrey, and Clampett. Mm-hmm. However, they were shocked to find out that it was actually the bodies of three women they didn't even know were missing: Beverly Bonner, the you know, the woman that he had uh, connected with while in prison. Right. Her body was in one of the barrels, plus the remains of 45-year-old Sheila Faith and her 15-year-old daughter, uh, disabled daughter, Debbie Mm. Faith. So now they've got three new victims. They didn't even know were, you know, they didn't even connect to John yet. Right. They've got the bodies found on his property. John had apparently lured them with the same promises of housing, employment, and anything else they needed. He had scammed them, killed them, and continued to cash their disability checks. The mm. Faith and Lawicka families had no idea their loved ones had even been in danger. They had all been tricked by John. And after the house of cards that John had built came tumbling down, the evidence against him, which had been aloof for so long, now seemed to spring forth from every crack of his facade. Um, and yeah, so I don't believe that um, Lisa Stacy, the, the mother of the little baby that, you know, they never found the baby. Obviously, the baby is still alive to this day. She's now a woman. Right. But I don't believe Lisa Stacy's body's ever been found. Um Paula Godfrey or Catherine Clampin. I'm not, I don't know. We, I don't, I don't believe they were ever found either. Okay. Paula Godfrey remains never recovered. Lisa Stacy never, never recovered. And Catherine Clampett never recovered. So those three yeah. were never found. And sadly, even with him still being alive in prison today, at 78 years old, has never um, come forward and given up where he put their bodies, which is crazy to me because he would end up ultimately, they would, they would accept like a plea deal to get him out of the death penalty. So they know that he didn't want to be, that he was afraid of the death penalty. Right. They could have, they should have used that as leverage to, you know, get, recover the bodies of the three women that we know he killed that were never found. Yeah, absolutely. They should have, but they already made a deal. What, what did they get out of the deal? So in, in 2003, he was found guilty for three murders. And then in 2005, he admitted responsibility for five homicides in Missouri and at trial in Kansas City, a deal to receive multiple life sentences without the possibility of parole and avoid more death sentences was agreed upon. Oh, because he admitted to five homicides. 
Yeah. Okay. But why not give give the locations of the bodies of the three that we know for sure he killed? You know, I know like uh, Lisa Stacy's daughter. Uh, I forget what what her real name is now. You know, the adopted daughter. What she in that ABC special was still out there. You know, she wants to, to recover her mom's body. You right. Know? Of course. Why wouldn't you? You'd want to know wh- yeah. who you came from, what happened to her. And the only person that knows, John Robinson, is still alive, 78 years old, sitting by, sitting in prison and hasn't come forth and given up that information. And that's what makes his narcissistic ass still relevant, that piece of shit. Yeah. And investigators suspect more victims remain un- undiscovered. I mean, there was there was large periods of time where, you know, it's not believed that he killed, but very possibly he did you know like much like every case we cover well, with a serial killer you, you have to assume there was at least a few more victims right and if there's three bodies we don't know of where where was he putting yeah. them before he started putting them in barrels you know That's what, I'm what i'm saying he had barrels in his on his property and then he also had barrels in his uh storage facility so who who knows where else he could have had more barrels right because he he was acquiring all types of shit from these victims that he was killing and you know mm-hmm. he took more from them than just disability checks or Ad- alimony checks or whatever you know he took storage locker keys passwords exactly. you know what i'm saying like all this other shit that he had access to there's just no telling where those other three could be yep there's really not man wow early days yep the chat room what killer. a case there's so much more to this case that you know you could get into each each and every little bit of corruption that he did and, and all the fraud and ripping off of companies yeah but uh I, th- I think you guys get the gist of it as far as all the all, all that fraud um but clearly was a psychopath murderer as well um, yeah no doubt this is a typical yeah. criminal um escalation but what's odd is that the childhood man the childhood was fine allegedly yeah. i mean other than his father being absent i guess and being an alcoholic but other than that his childhood seemed fine yeah, man, he yeah. fits the bad apple mold, I guess. Uh, nature versus nurture. Yeah, that this seems to be a nature one, I guess. You're saying, yes. Mm. Bad from the jump. That's right. Uh, sociopath, able to trick people into thinking he was one thing when he was another. Two face, you know. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something. That's- he crossed a lot of boundaries that we don't. We typically see like, um, you know, a certain type of offender, a sexual. A sexual sadist that kills for the pleasure of, you know, the, getting off on their pain. Yeah. And then we we see people that kill for financial gain. He did both. Like, he fit so many molds. I like, guess. I, I mean, don't I don't exactly know what his main motivation for killing was. I, I want to say it was financial benefit. Like, he was cashing their checks. He was picking people that had... Well, uh, it had to know, be. Income, social security checks, and things like that that he could continue to cash. But also, he, we know that he was in into the darker parts of BDSM and he got off on people's pain as well. So maybe but, it was like a double benefit for him when he killed. But here's the thing though, when you have someone that comes and lives with you and signs in to be your slave, don't you have pretty much control over them anyways? That's part of the, the draw of the relationship. So why kill them unless for money and their assets? Yeah. You know what I think he was always financially motivated. Right. He had the perfect he had the perfect gig if he wanted it. He could have had yeah. these people live in and be a sex slave and whatever and just do work for him if he wanted that very true but he killed them all almost immediately yeah so exactly so it wasn't really about the sex i I mean i think obviously he probably had sex with them but i think it was more about just the assets yeah just pulling another scam wow well don't scam your armpits no don't do that with some aluminum and Uh -uh. paraben filled bullshit no get the real deal that's right (laughs) don't scam your armpits i like that (laughs) don't cheat yourself out of an all-natural deodorant like Mm -hmm. oh my gaia an innovative 
all-natural deodorant, fragrance, and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Guys, their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while still maintaining effectiveness. At Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural, paraben, and aluminum-free organic ingredients. Guys, there's tons of scents to choose from, from vanilla to cherry almond, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, uh, Egyptian musk, which I'm wearing today, coconut, dreamsicle, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle, fireside, bergamot, amber, pear, sweet pea, sailor, barbershop, and so much more, guys, including our very own scent called True Crime Pine. True Crime Pine, one of my favorites. I always keep a jar on hand. And because you Make guys, you want to slap your mama. It, it does. It smells so damn good. Anybody can wear this shit. I don't care if you're a lumberjack or if you're a secretary. It doesn't really give a fuck. You can smell amazing in your True Crime Pine. Um, and because you guys are True Crime Guys listeners, you can use the word creeper for 15% off your order. That's C-R-E-E-P-E-R for 15% off your order at shop underscore oh my Gaia on Instagram or ohmygaia.com. That's O-H-M-Y-G-A-I-A dot com. And as always, guys, there's a link in the description to Oh My Gaia and all of their amazing deals that they have to offer. And again, use the code word CREEPER, guys, for 15% off. All right. right on. Um, I want to thank uh, those of you who have taken a minute to go and rate and review the show on iTunes Absolutely. and various places. Um, uh, this one, we last recorded on the second. This one says it's from the first, but I don't remember... I would remember this person's yeah. name on here, Zelly Dragmire. Yeah, they that might have snuck in under the wire or something. Yeah, so we're going to go ahead and give you a shout out. Zelly Dragmire says, fun and easy to listen to, five stars. I enjoy True Crime Podcast quite a bit, and I've listened to several. I like they do, the way they do fun intros for every episode and how casual they are. They break up the tragedy and horror with a bit of comedy, which maybe we have read that one. Oh, anyways, thank you for that. Uh, let's go Marty Party in the U.S. says, Creeper for life. Nice. Love true crime, guys. I've been listening for a while, and I'm happy to see the podcast and Creeper Army grow. Keep up the great work, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, then we got Fuck Robin Hood <laughs> uh, in the U.S. I wonder if this is a uh, stock investor that... Yeah, right. Uh, Sounds like screwed it. over by Robin Hood or something. Um, says, awesome show. These guys do a great job telling stories and being likable. I look forward to listening every week. And Lauren, I ask you to bring back your NFL podcast for the playoffs. I really enjoyed it as well. Thank you for, for you all you do. Yeah. I talked about that briefly on Just the Banter. Uh, I'll, I'm going to see Tori today. We're going to watch football today. And maybe I'll see if he wants to do at least one show for the playoffs and give some Super Bowl predictions and things like that. That'll be fun. Um, and that would be Full House Fantasy Podcast. Check it out. We haven't done an episode in a while, but you know we're going to ramp up for next season. And t- he wants to take it more serious. So we'll see what happens. Absolutely. Um, then we got J Block in the U.S. says one of the best, well done true crime podcasts out there. Note, please re-examine uh, all the evidence in West Memphis Three. So this is one of those oh, okay. people that believes that uh, Damien Eccles is a demon and that he he was guilty. Um, so we talked about this on Just a Banter a little bit as well. That we do we we were um, undeniably biased when we did the West Memphis Three case, and I still uh, am a staunch believer that they were innocent. Um, that being said, I don't put much clout into like the evidence against them because I just don't want to believe it. Right. So I, you know, I'm, I'm, we're human. We're, we're not perfect. So we thought maybe it'd be a, a cool concept to do a case and try to make the case against them as far as what evidence there is right. and, and, and play the other side a little bit, do an episode on uh Patreon just for that. Yeah, we could. Yeah. Just go into it with the mindset that we're trying to prove them guilty. Yeah, yeah. I guess. I mean, I'm hoping this DNA that's being tested now comes out and, and proves their innocence. And then we won't even have to bother with that, mm-hmm. but uh, it would be a fun episode nonetheless. So yeah, nonetheless, I mean, we can agree on disagree on things. Uh, and I appreciate J block for, you know, totally seeing things differently than us as far as West Memphis three goes, but still enjoying the show and leaving us a five-star rating. Absolutely. Thank, so, thank you. Thank you. 
Um, and then we got my boy Isa, who actually I trained jujitsu with. Uh, he's been talking about, uh, you know, he, he listens to the show and he's been talking about leaving a review. He finally did. He says, "Not gonna lie, this podcast is actually really interesting." Me and the wife <laughs> listen to this uh, on our day serving, on our day serving pools. Just make sure y'all remember us when you make it big. Best vibes. <laughs> right on, right on. Thank yeah. you, brother. Yeah, Isa's cool, man. We we train jujitsu together. Um, so yeah, shout out. Uh, and then we got uh, Lat seventy six in Great Britain over there. Uh, these dudes are great listen whilst I'm l- working my earphones in laughing away to myself at what they say next and getting funny looks from work colleagues as I laugh with them. But hey, they come in with some funny shit, lighthearted, cool stuff, but get to say nitty gritty from one, I don't even know what you're talking about, from one proud to say, I guess this is the accent that's fucking me up. Yeah. Um, from one proud to say, no offense taken on that one from a UK listener, keep up the creeping cheers, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Lat76, and cheers from over the pond, mate. Absolutely. Thank you for the support over there. Appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it. Get some of those Speaking coworkers of on board. You can laugh with them. Speaking <laughs> of support, let's talk uh, how you can support us with joining our Patreon page and getting a bunch of content. It's well worth your your $2, believe me. There's so much. You can't get more content for 2 bucks. I don't think. I don't think so either. Not a chance. No way. Um, so for at patreon.com slash true crime guys, two bucks a month, get you access to all of our backlog of Patreon exclusive episodes, which we've had Patreon for over three years. And once a month, when you don't hear us put out an episode on this free feed, it's because we did an episode over there. And usually it's the ones that require the most research and are longest and insane, like Ed Kemper and Ted Bundy and all those crazy big cases, Mm -hmm. two to three hours long. They're all over on Patreon and two bucks get you access to all of those plus whatever new episodes we come up with. And if you want even more content, you can go to the $5 tier a month and you can pay for this up front, by the way, and not have you know a monthly charge on your bill. That's right. And you save 10% by doing so. But uh, at the $5 tier, you get Just the Banter, which is a show that Michael, it's an extra show we do every Friday where we sit down and just hang out, answer listener questions, um, hypotheticals and all kinds of fun stuff. So yeah. Yep. Check that out. Patreon.com slash true crime guys. And we ultimately end up talking about show stuff, as Lauren has mentioned multiple times during this episode. Well, we talked about yeah. that on Just the Banter. <laughs> so sometimes exactly. we, you do get a little inside information on shows that we might do, cases we might cover, and get our opinions on cases that we've covered in the past or whatnot. So mm-hmm. we, we have a little more time to go in depth in those without people going, Why is this episode half about Gacy? It's supposed to be fucking, you know. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's, that's what we do that at. But, uh, and if you guys are already on Patreon, you can check out some of the other shows like Full House Fantasy Football that Lauren mentioned earlier on free platforms, wherever you listen, as well as Strange and Unexplained, uh, where we tackle unsolved, missing persons, uh, strange phenomena, cases like that that we typically tend to shy away from on True Crime Guys. We usually try to stick with solved cases and big hitters on True Crime Guys, whereas, like I say, on Strange and Unexplained, it's just that. They're strange cases off the wall. Um, typically unexplained missing persons cases that get very little attention mm-hmm. and uh, yeah so that's what we try to do new episodes come out strange and unexplained every single Monday guys I think we're we're approaching 90 episodes I think on strange Jesus, and unexplained that's insane man. I know Nine, God, how the days go by huh? they fly by dude been doing it for almost a year and a half so Dang. yeah so tons of content under the true crime guys umbrella guys uh, there's plenty to listen to so that's right. And there's links to everything that we mentioned right below this description. Um, and if you if you want, you can find it all in one place on the True Crime Guys link tree. Like I said, right below the description and sponsors of this episode. All right. That's it. Any last words? Uh, no, I think I'm good, man. I'm ready to wrap this thing up. Go watch some football. 
That's right. Last last week, uh, regular season, there's going to be a lot of uh, playoffs berths decided today and a lot of teams disappointed. Yep. It's all coming down the wire. I'm excited for today, for sure. Um, everybody, thank you for listening. Uh, we will see you next week. Keep creeping. Keep creeping, guys. True crime, guys. In the desert, we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making murder, get murder, get murder. True crime guys. In the desert, we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making murder charming. You hush your mouth, boy.